You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can like us on Facebook or go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Really important to get more listens for the world of women's basketball. Matters to me, matters to you as well, I'm sure. And matters to the great Gabriella Levine, who happens to be mentioned on pretty much every podcast she's not even on. Uh, Doug Feinberg decided (laughs) uh, to speak of her as well. And uh, now we have the legend in person. Uh, Gab, thank you for being on the program. Wow, Howard, thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. <laughs> well, this is exciting. This is an exciting time of year. We have you on the program, and we have our NCAA Tournament Spectacular. Uh, we have brackets to talk about. We have outrage to be able to declaim. So I guess the place we ought to start, if we're talking in terms of outrage, is the Bridgeport bracket. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll let you take the opener and we'll take it from here as to your thoughts about the uh, Bridgeport Regional Bracket. We're really starting with a bang, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think, I mean, the elephant in the room would be Maryland. Maryland! Which is something I think at this point many people have expressed disagreement with. I am one of those people. I'm very surprised that they are at the three seed. I was anticipating that they would go in at a two seed. And in my view, I think that this skews the Bridgeport regional mm-hmm. and makes it less balanced in a way than other regionals. I mean, let's talk about it. So I was able to uh, ask some questions of the committee chair last night. And in essence, the argument that she made was that Maryland's game against UConn was just that, was just one game. Uh, You pointed out off the air there are 16 different criteria that are used to measure. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the committee, as part of this, is taking a look. And so I just Mm -hmm. don't understand, even if, leave aside 107 straight wins, because a lot of them happen Mm -hmm. with the Brianna Stewart, Mariah Jefferson, Morgan Tuck Trio. The UConn team, best team in the country this year by far, the only team that came close was Maryland. Maryland came close, was right with them into the final minute during a game that UConn played its A game. I should say Tulane came close too, but but UConn did not play well. They played their A game, and Maryland still almost beat them. The only other team that beat Maryland all year was Ohio State, A, a terrific team in and of itself, and B, an Ohio State team that shot 63%. So a real outlier performance from Ohio State. The idea that Maryland isn't one of the top eight teams in the country just doesn't make any sense logically to me. I agree. I mean, a couple points on this because I have a lot of feelings on this. One is exactly what you're talking about. There are So there are 16 criterion for determining seating. And... You know, someone's got to weigh these factors with discretion, and that just happens to be the committee. Someone has to do it. So I understand that. I respect it. I think that it's ultimately a really hard task, and I wouldn't want to be the one doing it. But with that being said, two of the criteria that can be measured is competitive and losses. And, Howard, you and I have both agreed that in the past two seasons, we both think that Maryland has been the most competitive team 
going up against UConn. No question. And head-to-head matchups is another criteria that can be measured. Their head-to-head matchups with UConn, in my opinion, your opinion, have been the best overall. And and it's not just another game. That's the thing. You can't call playing against UConn just another game. That does not bow to the reality of the sport right now. So I also want to talk about, though, the S-curve in Maryland. And for people who are listening... The committee essentially takes all the teams and they're supposed to align them on the S-curve. And without getting too technical into what the S-curve actually does, it's supposed to essentially establish fairness and balance within each regional. And they don't, the committee doesn't adhere to it strictly, but they do the best that they can. Mm -hmm. And what's ultimately supposed to happen is that you have the number one overall team, right, in the Bridgeport Regional, which is UConn. Ideally, according to how the S-curve is supposed to work out, UConn should not be in, in a regional with the top two seed. Ideally, they might be in a regional with the top three seed and a low four seed. I would argue that the way that this has worked out in the Bridgeport Regional, with Maryland getting, I think, the wrong designation as, you know, one of the top three seeds, mm-hmm. I think that Maryland should actually be one of the top two seeds, which would mean ultimately if they had been one of the top two seeds, they would not have been placed in the Bridgeport Regional in the first place, according to how the S curve should have worked out in this scenario. I think that. It disadvantages UConn, number one. I think that it disadvantages Maryland, number two. And I think that ultimately it disadvantages viewers because I think that this matchup, if they meet in the Elite Eight, will be the best game of the tournament, and I wish that we could have been able to see see it in the Final Four instead. No question about it. You know, to my mind, the analog to the men's game is the Elite Eight game that you had the Christian Leitner shot is the famous part of it between Kentucky and Duke. I want to say that was back in 1992. And it turned into the best game of that tournament. I think this is going to be if this game comes to pass. And a lot of things have to happen. It's not automatic that UConn and Maryland are getting there for a lot of reasons. Uh, Duke doesn't have something to say about it. A terrific defensive team that shoots better than 40% from three. Uh, Absolutely a legit two in my mind. And UCLA. UCLA is a four seed. UCLA is a very good team capable of playing with anyone in the country. So... This is going to be fascinating to see, but if it does come to pass, I think UConn-Maryland will be one for the ages, in part because Maryland's had two shots in them already. They are centered on trying to beat UConn and trying to take their place atop the sport, but also because, and we've talked about this, UConn is probably as thin as they will be for the next couple of years, you look at the recruiting class coming in next year, Azura Stevens coming in as a transfer from Duke. This may be the best chance anybody has at stopping UConn from, say, UConn 200 in terms of consecutive wins. And so, historically, I think it's worth thinking about. We may look back at this and think about it in that fundamental way. Yeah, I mean, they lost by 10 against UConn in 2015 on neutral ground. They lost by 6 in 2016 um, at College Park. And what I will say, for me, what sets Maryland apart from other teams that go up against UConn is that I think all too often we see teams and coaches take this approach when they play UConn, which is that 
they're not going to get caught up in the hype that is UConn. They're not going to pay attention to the streak. They're not going to pay attention to the four consecutive national championships. They're going to go into it. They're going to play their game. They're going to try not to get too caught up. And that might work for some teams. It really might. But I think that what Maryland does is that they acknowledge UConn for what UConn is. And they let it fuel them. And they let it motivate them. And they openly, season after season, go up against them for that reason, because they want to play the right, best team right. in the country. They want to meet that challenge head on. And I think that they have some factors this year, namely um, their fabulous freshman point guard going for them. Can and, it, and, that, and, and to that end, by the way, on the court too, I think, Maryland is a particularly significantly good matchup against UConn. Maryland does a couple of things that I think, you have to do to beat UConn, one of them being you need to be extremely efficient with the ball in terms of being able to score, and they have two of the top 20 in terms of true shooting percentage in the country in Shaturi Walker, Kimbrough, and Brianna Jones. They also are a team that controls the boards like few others with the possible exception of Baylor, and that is vitally important to be able to end possessions for UConn and be able to make sure that you lengthen your possessions with potential second-chance points as well. These are things that I think are key to not just winning games, but specifically to beating UConn. So, hypothetically, Howard, if we saw a UConn and Maryland matchup in the Elite Eight, who, who do you pick to win that game? So, I am going to go out on a limb here a little bit and say I think this is Maryland's year, and I think Maryland is going to be the ones who win that game. And they are my pick, though, let me be clear, this is to take nothing away from UConn. If UConn wins the national title and beats Maryland, it should not come as any sort of surprise. But I think having that third time to be able to take a shot at them in two years, if Maryland gets that chance, I think they're going to take advantage. What about you? So I'm going to disagree. I'm going to go with Connecticut to win that game. And my reasoning... I go back to the conversation that we had, um, you know, December 29th. I think it was on the spot podcast right after the Maryland game. And what I said at the time was that all things being equal in that game. So UConn has no foul trouble. Uh, Katie Samuelson is perfectly, you know, healthy, shooting well. Mm-hmm. Maryland, Bree Jones doesn't get into foul trouble. Shatori Walker-Kimber actually can find the hoop and make some shots. All things being equal... I think that Connecticut still wins that game. And I think all things being equal in the Elite Eight, Connecticut will win the game. I think what, for me, the the factor that tips in their favor is Gabby Williams. Because we've been questioning all season how UConn is going to stack up and measure up against teams with height, teams with a player like Bree Jones, who's your traditional back-to-the-basket low-post player. But I think that a player like Bree Jones is actually disadvantaged when she goes up against a player like Gabby Williams because Gabby overwhelms people with her athleticism. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter how many tall post players are in the paint. She can have the ability to overwhelm every single one of them. And for that reason, I think that she kind of minimizes the threat of Bree Jones in the paint 
through her athleticism. I, it's a great point. And look, Gabby has an argument, first of all, as Defensive Player of the Year. Second of all, as potential Player of the Year overall. There are three UConn players that can make that argument. Nafisa Collier is the only one more efficient in the country than Bree Jones. And obviously, Katie Lou Samuelson has made a three-pointer or two you might have seen on, on the highlight films recently. So, But she's an all-around <laughs> player. So it, it's a terrific, terrific UConn team. And they'll also have to do it in Bridgeport. Let's not forget about the fact that the last two times they've played, one was in a neutral site at Madison Square Garden, and the other was at the Xfinity Center uh, down in College Park. So it is not an easy task. I think UConn should be favored in that game. It's just a hunch of mine that this is where Maryland finally gets the opportunity to break through. Uh, but it, it's going to be a fascinating game. But before we leave the Bridgeport region, there are some first-round games I'd like to highlight as well, uh, some that I'm particularly excited about. I think the 5-12 matchup, Texas A&M versus Penn, is a really interesting one. Uh, Penn, let's not forget, very nearly took down uh, University of Washington last year. Penn was a 10 seed. Washington was a seven seed uh, before Kelsey Plum went off in the fourth quarter. Don't know whatever happened to Plum, but uh, I hopefully she's gone on to some great things since that game. And, of course, Penn this year being a 12 seed, going up against Texas A&M. Well, Penn is a particularly good defensive team. Uh, Michelle Wachetti, Ivy League Player of the Year, is a difficult matchup for anyone. And they're going up against a Texas A&M team whose Achilles heel is turnovers. So... I think that is a matchup where we could see the 12 break through in a way we saw Albany break through last year against uh, Florida in the 5-12 game. That's what I'm very excited about. Also, Temple, Oregon. There may not be a more efficient point guard in the country than Fionda Fitzgerald when you look at her assist percentage, which is, I believe, top five nationally, and she simply doesn't turn the ball over. So that is a Temple team with a great backcourt. Whereas Oregon, who I was fortunate enough to see in person earlier this year when they played out against USC, has some amazing freshman talent. Uh, going to be very difficult for anyone uh, to uh, to stop Sabrina Ionescu, uh, who was probably the freshman of the year, other than Destiny Slocum. So that is a game that is going to produce A, a tremendous amount of high-level basketball, and B, a real challenge uh, for Duke, assuming the Duke gets by Hampton. And on my end, I would also like to highlight the unlikely important first-round matchup of UConn and Albany. Mm -hmm. Got to show Albany, my home team, some love. I think <laughs> that, I mean, you know, we look at this game, I think it's a very safe bet that UConn is going to walk away with the win. Mm -hmm. But what I will say about UAlbany is that their story is maybe one that has gone unnoticed in the mid-majors. There's an argument that they are one of the most consistent, if not the most consistent, mid-major teams today. They are the only team right now with an active six-year streak of earning an automatic berth by winning their conference tournament. So they've done so six years in a row. Not the and other team they're playing. Not UConn. Thanks to Notre not Dame. UConn. That's right. Exactly. And, I mean, Green Bay has done it five times in a row. Mm. Marist at one point did it nine times in a row. That ended in 2014. I think that there are some really interesting parallels to UConn because UAlbany went into this season. They lost their head coach and coach Abe. Mm -hmm. They lost Sharisha Richards, who was one of the best players all time in a mid-major conference. A remarkable player at both ends remarkable player they weren't really expected 
to bounce back in the way that they did. And yet, here they are. They're going to the NCAA tournament. Again, they won their conference. And so that team has an interesting story. I hope that it doesn't go overlooked just because of who their opponent is in the first round. Absolutely agree. And last, and before we lose the uh, Bridgeport region, have to point out the eight-seed Syracuse team that went to the national championship has an opportunity potentially if you continue by Albany uh, to face the champs in the second round. I talked to Brittany Seitz earlier this year. Seitz, of course, with Alexis Peterson, part of arguably the best backcourt in college basketball. And she talked about the decision to come back for uh, what wouldn't have been a necessary year at Syracuse. She could have jumped to the WNBA after last year. Not only has she come back and gotten so much better, and her three-point shot up over 40% now, but she did it specifically because she didn't want her season, her career to end the way that game ended. And so seeing Seitz and Peterson get another shot against UConn, obviously UConn's going to be the heavy favorite, but it's worth watching Syracuse just to watch that backcourt, you know, not to mention, you know, the Day Sisters. And I highly recommend that Syracuse-Iowa State game, that 8-9 game. And any chance you get to see Seitz and Peterson is something you really ought to do. I'm That Bridgeport region, holy cow, it is just stacked. But let's move on to some of the other regions where there are terrific teams as well. And the place I'd like to go next is Oklahoma City, which has lots of talent in it as well. Let's start. Do you think Oklahoma City is more talented than Bridgeport, or do you think Bridgeport has more teams than Oklahoma City? I think that Bridgeport is skewed for the reasons that we talked about with Maryland at the three. But overall, Oklahoma City, no doubt. I mean, I looked at it last night, and wow, I just felt like it's going to be like a bloodbath in Oklahoma City. I think that Carol Lawson had the best way to describe it, which was just it's spicy, and it really, really is. They have... They have more talent in Oklahoma City, I feel, than in any other regional so in place, the entire bracket. place I want to start there is you have something like Gonzaga as an 11 seed, the West Coast champions who were absolutely dominant right up through the, the championship game, easily won that conference. They're an 11 seed going up against an Oklahoma team that's terrific as a six. They have DePaul, the Big East regular season champions. I know they lost in the championship game uh, to Marquette, but I don't understand for the life of me DePaul as a seven when they played as well as they did this year, most of it without Jessica January, who missed most of the season with Mm -hmm. her injury. Jessica January, one of the best point guards in the country. Now she is back and playing extremely well, had a triple-double during the conference tournament. DePaul is a seven for Mississippi State in the second round. That is a potential absolute landmine for Vic Schaefer's team. Yeah, I actually have DePaul coming out of that game winning, and I agree with you. I I don't think that they should be at a seven seed. I think that it undervalues what Doug Bruno can do with a team. And has he has done. a way of he right, he has a way of getting the best out of his teams. You have to think about the season that they had, I believe they lost three starters overall, Jessica January being one of them, and yet they were consistently ranked yeah. in the top twenty throughout the season. Yeah. Think I, about that. I, no, it's mind blowing. And, and and deserved better. 
And that's before we even get into what could be a potential amazing second-round matchup between Tennessee and Louisville, type of thing you'd expect in maybe an Elite Eight. Uh, Asia Durr against Diamond De Shields is just something that would be remarkable. But let's not lose sight of the fact that both of those teams are vulnerable in the first round. Uh, Tennessee is facing Dayton, the A-10 champs. Dayton is a really good defensive team. Uh, When I saw Dayton twice in nine days do an absolutely amazing job against St. Louis, uh, first in the A-10 regular season finale and then in the conference tournament semis, that really sold me on them as a versatile defensive juggernaut. And Dayton is, by the advanced metrics, consistently been in the top 20 defensively all year. And Chattanooga, you know, Jim Foster, he's, he's won a game or two. And they are a team that went and scheduled up. They played hard. They played teams on the road. Look, they opened at Rutgers, which didn't turn out to be as challenging a game as probably when they scheduled it, but still showed they were not afraid to play anybody. And that is a team with a lot of talent as well. So there are no easy games in this bracket. And that's before we even get into the idea of Cal as a 90 with Christina Nigway. You can argue, and, and I have actually in a piece, Advice Sports Today, you can argue against Cal's overall resume when you look at things like 6-12 and 12 in the Pac-12, although that, that conference was so good that it's hard to hold that against them. But that is a team with Lindsey Gottlieb, a terrific coach with Final Four experience, and an absolute star in an Igway. Uh, who can carry a team but doesn't have to because of players like Michaela Callen. So Cal is a potential second-round matchup against Baylor is going to be absolutely remarkable before we even get into the fact that everyone needs to root for Cal to get to the Final Four so that Lindsey Gottlieb can be the first coach to ever advance to a Final Four and have a baby in the same weekend. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that I would take this so piece by piece, and first off, agreeing with what you're pointing out. It's, yeah, I think about that the Oklahoma pregnancy, City right? Has, you're starting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. About Oklahoma City having the most competitive first round games out of any regional. I had my eye on the 5-12 Tennessee Dayton matchup because it reminds me a little bit of where U Albany was at mm-hmm. in the first round last year, sitting at a 12 seed. I believe they took down Florida in the first round. They did. Um, who was a five seed at the time. And so that reminds me of, of that game a little bit with Dayton having that potential for an upset. But it is so hard for me to look at Oklahoma City and predict what might happen because Tennessee just throws a wrench into it. I I cannot predict. I don't know if any of us can predict at this point I which sure version of Tennessee is going to show up. I mean... They have four wins over top ten teams, and not just any top ten teams. They beat Mississippi State, Notre Dame, South Carolina, and Stanford. And yet they have eight losses to unranked teams. Lost to Alabama (laughs) in the conference tournament. Right. After dominating Mississippi State. Yeah, I know. It it blows my mind. I I, I totally agree with you. You know, I picked Washington coming out of this bracket simply because – there is so much uncertainty. There are so many great teams and so much talent there that, all right, I'll just put the chips on Kelsey Plum, and why not? Who, who better? <laughs> I actually, so I 100% agree. I have Washington coming out of the Oklahoma City Regional into the Final Four. And 
the reason I chose that is kind of similar to the reason that you chose it. I think that all season long, one of the first podcasts we did, Howard, we were shocked that Kelsey Plum was, where was she? On the predicted top players in the country? I, I, I believe an unnamed list that shall remain nameless had her sixth in the country. Sixth in the country. Sixth in the country. And Kelsey Plum. Six. So let's let that sink in for a moment. Sixth <laughs> in the country. She has now broken Jackie Styles' all-time scoring record in the NCAA. She is now the Pac-12's all-time scoring leader. She has taken her team to places I believe they would not have gone without her. And so because of that, because I think that she, people almost bet against her in the past two seasons. I'm not willing to bet against her. I'm putting my confidence in Kelsey Plum and also Chantal Osahor. I mean, she leads the nation in rebounding. I watched her get 30 boards in one game. 30. They have an, they don't have a lot of depth, but the two of them together can make for a very difficult system to solve for an opponent. And, and they and more to... shooters than last year. Even it wasn't right. like they had a deep team last year. You know they're missing Walton this time around, but have more potential options to replace her in a given tournament game. Right, and if you haven't come up against Kelsey Plum frequently, I, I think that you can make an argument that teams in the Pac-12 that solved Washington this season were teams that consistently saw them season after season. You know, regular season after regular season you haven't come up against Kelsey Plum in the past, she's a problem for teams. She's a problem. She can't be contained, and she has a head of steam when it comes to games like this, and I think that she's going to take her team again just as far as she did last season, just to and tie, I really hope to see it happen. And just to tie it back to our Maryland conversation, Maryland lost last year in the second round in the game that shocked me more than any other in the tournament. And who did they lose to? They lost to Washington because Kelsey Plum came in totally unbowed by playing on the road and went in and won at College Park. So that just goes to show you exactly what Kelsey Plum is capable of doing and I think will continue to do so. Well, it's going to be an amazing region. Let's move on, though, to two of the other regions, which are also interesting in their own way, and one of them being Lexington. Uh, so for me, Lexington is a bit of a wide-open region. Uh, Notre Dame is a one. They've played very well, especially down the stretch. Uh, it is a very Muffet-McGraw team, maximizing what they are capable of doing. Uh, went out and dominated the ACC tournament as well. A well-deserved one seed. Uh, I actually think... There are a number of teams here who potentially can make some noise. Uh, the team I ultimately have winning the region is Ohio State for some reason we can get into. But what are your just overall takes on the bracket? What jumps out at you? So Lexington was harder for me to really form any arguments on because I think that it's a bit more wide open than the other regionals are. What jumps out at me, first and foremost, Notre Dame, have to point out, is scheduled to play on St. Patty's Day. Mm -hmm. So that might bring them a little bit of extra luck. <laughs> the reason that Lexington is hard to predict is because Notre Dame has not necessarily given us what we expected this entire season. True. I think that they had some uncharacteristic losses. They lost to UConn. Um, they lost to Tennessee. They lost to NC State particularly when they came up short against NC State. I think that 
a lot of fans, a lot of viewers were questioning where they would be at by the time the tournament came around. With that being said, I think that a lot of their players have stepped up. I think that their shooting has gotten a lot better. Marina Mabry has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. Jackie Young really impressed me all season long as a freshman. They won the ACC championship. But I kind of have to question how consistent they'll be throughout the tournament because we have seen them experience some uncharacteristic losses. They might, however, have a little bit of extra motivation given that they lost last year to Stanford, who conveniently is also in Lexington. It's really going to be interesting to see how Stanford does, and Stanford really came off late in the season. That Stanford-Texas potential matchup in the Sweet 16 is a really interesting one for that reason. Uh, but the one I have my eye on most of all is Notre Dame against Ohio State. And we were talking off-air. I actually just received a call, uh, or received an email, rather, from the Ohio State PR uh, department who does bang-up work. Stephanie Mavandra is close on whether she plays this weekend or not. Well, you give her an extra week and you're talking about the Sweet 16, you will have, in Steph, you have a player who led the nation in rebounding percentage. So having someone capable of, bring, of grabbing those boards, of going head-to-head -head against Brianna Turner is so key against Notre Dame. If she is healthy, I think that is the game that proves to be too much for Notre Dame this uh, this particular tournament. But that is going to be the matchup that I really hope we get to see, not just because I think it will be a great matchup, but I'd love to see both these teams at 100%. And if that happens, Kelsey Mitchell with an opportunity to own a game, well, that's something that she takes personally, as we saw when Ohio State went out and beat Maryland, as we've seen time and time again throughout her college career. So I actually filled out the bracket with the thought in mind that Mavunga would not be back. Hmm. But with that being said, I have Ohio State beating Notre Dame and coming up against Stanford, who I have beating Texas um, in the Elite Eight. So Ohio State versus Stanford in the Elite Eight. When I filled it out, I had the thought in mind that, yes, I think that Kelsey Mitchell can elevate a team. If there's any one player other than Kelsey Plum in this entire tournament who can put a team on her back, it's... Kelsey Mitchell, but I ultimately picked Stanford coming out of that one, and my pitch for Stanford overall is the Pac-12. Mm -hmm. I think that the Pac-12 by far is the most competitive conference. I think that all teams who have gone through the Pac-12 this season, there are, there are seven teams in this tournament from the Pac-12. That's their most since 2006. They have the highest conference RPI. The Pac-12 prepares you the NCAA tournament, and I think Stanford in particular has so much momentum. They're coming in strong after winning the Pac-12 championship. I think that that's going to propel them forward, and they're going to be hot throughout the beginning of the tournament. It might change some things for me, though, knowing that Mavunga might be back, but we also have to have the understanding that I'm taking Stanford to the Elite Eight based on the decision that they might beat Texas, which could also be very, very wrong. Texas. Because Texas, for the first time in a few years now, is not placed directly in UConn's path. Right. So that must be a complete relief for them, looking I, at this bracket. I mean, I think Karen Aston did an amazing job. When you lose Imani Boyette, 
and what she brings to the table, both offensively and defensively. And they were able to not miss a beat at both ends. They actually got slightly more efficient this year, both offensively and defensively. That, to me, speaks volumes about the type of coaching job she's done. And look, she fit a pattern. You know, they they went to the Sweet 16 two years ago. They went to the Elite Eight last year. This is an opportunity to potentially go to the Final Four, and it would not surprise me in the least. I actually have them beating Stanford. I, I think you're right about the Pac-12, and I am a huge proponent of the Pac-12's quality this year, but there's a different team that we'll get to in a, fo- in a follow-up region that I think actually manifested that, self, uh, that particular reality a little bit better. I have Ohio State and Texas in that Elite Eight, but if Texas made it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Last thing I'd like to highlight before we go on to the final region, best first-round game I think we're going to see. There are two of them. There's Kansas State and Drake, that 7-10 matchup. Drake has been extremely good this year, won the conference convincingly. You can make the argument that Drake ought to be higher than a 10, especially if Northern Illinois is also a 10. Going up against Kansas State, Kansas State team that, by the way, only lost to UConn by 16, played them very tough early on this year. That is a legit Kansas State team as well. And the 6-11 uh, matchup, NC State, a team that beat Notre Dame, a team that has a bunch of top 15 wins on its resume, going up against Auburn, the only team that was better at turning people over this year than Mississippi State all season was Auburn. So that is going to be a really interesting, probably a game that ends up in the 50s, and a game that could go either way, one I am extremely eager to see. So I guess that takes us to Stockton. Stockton time. And so the place to start, I think, when it comes to Stockton, for me, has to be the 8-9 game. Uh, We'll get into some of the teams that are going deeper, but that Arizona State versus Michigan State game, uh, I have been speaking to everyone I can, to you. Um, Sometimes I'm watching the game late at night, and the cat's sitting on my lap, and I'll speak to the cat about it. Tori Jankoska, (laughs) who just does these ridiculous things on both ends of the court. Tori Jankoska, who manages on a regular basis to lead her team in points, in assists, in rebounds. Tori Jankoska, who per synergy is a top 30 player in the country in terms of defensive points per possession. Tori Jankoska, who is on my draft board at the end of the first round and someone who I think is going to be an elite pro, has the WNBA body. Going up against a really good defensive team from Arizona State, Sophie Bruner is a legit swing player, someone who can play the two, the three, even the four in some lineups. That is a game I am as excited about as any. Uh, and I would be remiss when I'm talking about the game not to mention Tori Jankoska. But what are your thoughts about Stockton? I have my eye on Marquette. I think that they're the team to watch sitting at the five seat because they've been hot all season long. They finished 25-7. and This is their first appearance since 2011. They won the Big East Tournament, and they beat DePaul three times overall this season, which I think has been the argument for why DePaul may may be at seven and they may be at five. Whether or not we agree with it is another story. Mm -hmm. But they also, something really interesting is took down Oregon State at the beginning of the season. So Marquette is a team that can cause upsets. And I actually have, I've circled 
who I believe will be in the Sweet 16, which is South Carolina and Marquette, I've circled that game. Because yeah. I think that that, I ultimately have South Carolina coming out winning, but I think that that could be one of the best Sweet 16 matchups that we see in this entire bracket because of Marquette's ability to upset teams. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that South Carolina has obviously gone into this tournament now with a bit of a setback with the loss of Elena Coates. Um, I think it is, it's a major blow for them because when I think of the South Carolina team over the years, their defining feature, what they will be remembered for is having those two bigs inside, Asia Wilson and Elena Coates. I, I don't think that it's a team that we're going to soon forget, even if they haven't won a national championship with the two of them inside. So it is a setback, but I think that we kind of have to look at it and be optimistic because I've actually liked the way that South Carolina has looked with a smaller lineup. I've liked that they've played um, four out with more guards because it's freed up one player in particular, which is Kayla Davis. I think that obviously you would always, always, 10 times out of 10, want Elena Coates on the floor. But not having her in the paint tends to open up the lane a bit more for Kayla Davis, who is actually most effective in my mind when she puts the ball on the floor and goes for the dribble drives to the hoop. Yeah, I, So I, that's a player, I think, who can step up for South Carolina in the tournament. It is a great point. And yes, absolutely, South Carolina Marquette, if it comes to pass, is the game of the region, I think, quite potentially. Although South Carolina, Oregon State, would be amazing in the Elite Eight as well. But let's talk about what it means on the defensive side of things. The reason why Marquette has been so effective uh, and and again, you know, Carolyn Teeter deserves some conversation for Coach of the Year uh, as well, though to my mind, Doug Bruno is the one who ought to win it for the reasons you so eloquently uh, discussed earlier on in the program. But Marquette, really effective team this year at being able to shoot the ball from the perimeter. And that is what I'm most curious about for South Carolina. You know, those four out, it makes a difference. You're right. It makes a difference for Davis. It makes a difference for Asia Wilson, too, who is a more creative and more varied scorer inside, really a high-low post type of player, uh, whereas Coates, who was uh, terrific and obviously headed to the WNBA, but more of that traditional flat-out five, a lot of overlap between what she does and what Wilson does. So there's a certain offensive freedom. But I want to see what South Carolina does in terms of being able to defend on the perimeter. The, the loss of Tiffany Mitchell, I think, is more keenly felt for them on the defensive end this year than on the offensive end because of players like Kayla Davis who were able to come in and score and score effectively for them on the outside. Marquette presents that challenge for them, and I'm really curious to see what they do. And it's interesting because Marquette has proven to be able to win against teams who even have really good defense, such right. as Oregon State, which right. I think that there's an argument that Oregon State is one of the best defensive teams in the country. Absolutely. So Marquette is just a wild card. It's hard to predict what will happen with them. As far as Oregon State goes, and, and again, I'm talking Coach of the Year, but uh, Scott Ruler coming back and winning the Pac-12 regular season and playing as well as they have all year with the losses of Ruth Hamblin, everyone's favorite rocket scientist slash center, you know, with the loss of Jamie Wisner, who was a absolute beating heart of this team last year. At, really impressive. And to me, Oregon State showing themselves to be 
ultimately the best in that Pac-12, perhaps the best conference in the country, certainly in that conversation. I think Oregon State is as battle-tested as anybody, not to mention the number of players from Sydney Weiss on down who had the experience of going to the Final Four last year. So that Oregon State-South Carolina matchup is a really interesting one. If it comes to pass, that is the Elite Eight matchup I have, and I have Oregon State winning that one. I have Oregon State going to the Final Four as well. And, I mean, man, you really have to recognize what Scott Rook did with this team this year. He lost. I think overall it was five seniors. Mm -hmm. They were picked to finish fifth in the Pac-12 preseason. And this team has shocked me game after game after game. They did lose to Stanford in the Pac-12 championship, but they've shown an ability to spring back, I think, this season after losses. You look at when they lost to Marquette in the beginning of the season, they then exploded and went on a 12-game win streak. Um, Sydney Weeze is a strong go-to scorer. Uh, I think that at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, Howard, she leads the Pac-12 in three-point shooting mm -hmm. overall. Um, they've had an answer at the time to top 10 Washington at the beginning of the season. They're, as I said earlier, great defensively. They're great on the boards. For me, when I looked at this bracket, I thought that Oregon State had the clearest path not just to the Final Four, but also to the National Championship game. Yeah, and and so let's talk about what that Final Four is. So just to review, pull it all together, my Final Four, I've got Maryland, I've got Washington, I've got Ohio State, and I've got Oregon State. What is your Final Four? So I've got Connecticut coming out of Bridgeport, I've got Washington coming out of Oklahoma City, I have Stanford coming out of Lexington, and Oregon State coming out of Stockton. So my semifinal matchups, if I may say so, are especially fun and exciting. The idea that Maryland <laughs> not only gets an opportunity. So my, my scenario, my Maryland scenario, and I have Maryland, let's be clear, winning it all, involves getting revenge against UConn in the Elite Eight and then going and getting a chance to get revenge against Washington in the national semifinal game. And that would be absolutely epic down in Dallas. So I have Maryland winning that one. I have Oregon State beating Ohio State and what should again, I mean, you want to talk about extremes. Ohio State's nonstop fast-paced offense led by the fastest player in college basketball in Kelsey Mitchell going up against Oregon State, that stalwart defensive team. But I have Oregon State winning that and Maryland over Oregon State in what would be an absolute classic uh, final game. What about you? I mean, if you want to talk about absolutely epic in terms of Final Four games, I have the Huskies going against the Huskies. <laughs> so that's that's pretty amazing that overall. That is true. Ultimately, I have Connecticut walking away with the win. I want to say years ago, I bet against Connecticut for winning a national championship. I think that it was in Diana Taurasi's time. I was super young. It was like 2003-2004 season when everybody thought that the odds were stacked against them. I right. was proven wrong at that time. Well, I we've all made mistakes. Learned my lesson. Yes. Yeah. Since learned my lesson, I try not to bet against UConn, and I think that UConn has has earned their distinction this season. And I think that at this point, they have earned the respect of everyone and shown all of us. Because, Howard, we had sat on this podcast at the beginning of the season, and, I mean, I might not have made, um, you know, really strong statements like Doug Feinberg did with his belief that they wouldn't win 
130 games in a row. But yeah, I nothing Doug Feinberg-esque, obviously. Sure, nothing yeah, definitive nothing, like that. Nothing like Doug Feinberg would have done. Right. But I sure. didn't look at this season and say, wow, UConn is the clear frontrunner. I think that both of us sort of looked at this season and said, wow, Notre Dame is the clear frontrunner, and we were proven wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that UConn has sufficiently proven all of us wrong, and I think that for me, they're going to walk away at the national championship this year. I will say, to be fair, that I, I believe I had Maryland as the national champion during the preseason. I've seen nothing over the course of this year that has led me to alter my thoughts about Maryland in and of themselves. But what you said is absolutely accurate, that UConn, look, this was a UConn team that Gino did not stop telling me and everyone else that they were going to lose. They were going to lose during mm-hmm. uh, the non-conference schedule. And so he's uh, seemed as surprised as anyone that they keep on winning. It will in no way surprise me if you turn out to be right about UConn, uh, a team that absolutely deserves everybody's respect and admiration for what they've done. We will, uh, as far as I'm concerned, not see something like the UConn program again in our lifetimes. And it's an amazing thing to see what they have managed to do. Uh, I cannot wait to see how it all unfolds. And uh, I'm really looking forward to heading to Dallas. Any other final thoughts? Any other things you think we may have missed talking about the bracket? So I just want to mention Oklahoma City. I think that uh, we skipped over the Baylor Lady Bears. They're Mm -hmm. a hard team to skip over. So maybe go back to them real quick. Um, I ultimately have Washington beating Baylor in the Elite Eight. Reason being is because I've been questioning uh, their consistency after they lost the Big 12 tournament. Mm -hmm. And I think I mentioned this this to you yesterday, Howard, that that's their this is their first time entering the NCAA tournament with a loss in like something like seven seasons. They've consistently won um, the Big 12 since 2010, I believe. So that that's surprising to me. And I, I wonder, I think that Baylor at this point has a chance to prove that that loss was either a fluke to West Virginia or maybe it's something more about this team. And the loss of Alexis Jones questioning where she's at with her injury is big to me because she does so much for that team so much so much of the effectiveness on the offensive end of the floor for that team is based around Alexis Jones as a facilitator as a scorer Um, and so for me that was the main reason why I have them losing in the Elite Eight but I would not be surprised if we see Baylor moving beyond that. No I, I absolutely agree with you and Jones is the big question mark for me because not only what she does for that team overall, but what she does for that team in terms of feeding Kalani Brown, who is as Mm -hmm. dominant an interior player as we've seen in quite some time. Someone who, to my mind, was actually uh, her conference player of the year this year. Uh, No offense to Brooke McCarty, who had a terrific season as well, but Kalani Brown needs to be fed. And uh, if Jones is not at full strength, then you didn't have a real question as to how easily that is done. But Baylor is a terrific team in their own right, and I sure hope we get to see a healthy Alexis Jones because uh, the nation deserves to see it, and Jones deserves that national spotlight. Well, Gabrielle Levine, obviously you have lived up to your billing and more, as always. Thank you so much for being on the program. 
Thank you for having me on, Howard. And a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can like us on Facebook. Go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. I am Howard Meddahl wishing you a wonderful March Madness.